Welcome everybody to this uh, edition of London Futurists, which is being held in uh, Conway Hall, courtesy of Conway Hall Ethical Society. Uh, you can choose uh, London Thinks as the hashtag, and you can uh, get the discussion going there. And by the way, uh, if you do like what you hear tonight, uh, you will find there's some copies of uh, Steve Keen's books available at the back, courtesy of Newham Bookshop. So by all means, uh, have a look at that on the way out. And if you more generally are interested in a discussion about uh, the future, uh, or about ethical aspects of how we can use technology and how we can use humanity to build a better society, then by all means take a look at the orange uh, leaflet on your chairs, which will allow you to sign up as a member of Conway Hall Ethical Society. And London Futurists, of which I am chair, also runs its own set of speaker programs, and you can find more about London Futurists uh, and the events we hold in different venues uh, online at londonfuturist.com. Having said all that, just a brief note about the format of tonight. We're going to hear a presentation shortly from uh, Professor Steve Keen, who is going to address this topic, Will We Crash Again? And you will hear his views as to various important trends, various important uh, underappreciated factors of finance, which uh, he believes deserves much more attention, and I fully agree with that, which is why he is speaking. Then we will have a discussion for about another 45 minutes, which will be everybody's chance to speak and add to the conversation. We'll wind up about nine o'clock, and when I say wind up, there will be an opportunity nevertheless to go and to a nearby pub, the Enterprise, which should accommodate not all of us, but uh, those of us who uh, wish to continue, uh, there should be room for most of us. So having said all that, I'll turn now to Professor Steve Keen, who has been writing about uh, different ways of uh, perceiving economics for quite a number of years. His book, Debunking Economics, uh, made quite a splash when it first landed and got even more of a splash when people realized that he was one of the few people who had comprehensively and authoritatively forecast aspects of the great financial crisis of 2007-2008. Most people did not see that coming. Most of the mainstream economists uh, said it was something that by its very nature could not be predicted. But in fact, there were a number of economists who did predict that, not just in general terms saying something bad might happen, but actually outlying, uh, here are the stress factors, here's why it's becoming more and more likely there will be a major reset. And so having recognized that he had been uh, uh, prescient, uh, more and more people have picked up his book, and it is now in a second edition. And you're going to hear highlights of that. But you're also going to hear some cutting edge, uh, more recent thinking from uh, Professor Keane tonight. So, Welcome. Thank you. Okay. Thank, you. thank you for uh, coming along tonight. Um, as David has said, the last crash wasn't anticipated by what we, what, what I've been calling a mainstream of economics for decades now, and I think people in the audio, in the public, are finally realising what I, what I mean by that. That is actually not just one approach to economics, there's several, but one, one particular school is dominant. And that particular school, really, I think you could call them, most of them shouldn't be given doctorates, they should be given Dr. Panglossians. They've got a very Panglossian view of how capitalism functions. And one of my favourites ever was Bernanke, uh, patting himself on the back for talking about the 
period that they saw as being signifying their success in managing the economy that they called the Great Moderation. And this is a period where there were declining cycles in unemployment and inflation. So in, every time there was a downturn, the unemployment rate was lower, the inflation rate was also trending lower, and you see there he said that they saw the control of inflation, which was the obsession they have, that if you get inflation right, everything else follows. Uh, that's what they thought they were controlling, and this was a welcome change in the economy, writing in, uh, in 2004 and speaking about the period after October 79, which was one of the many crashes beforehand. Now, that's, you know, that's a few years away from the crisis. My favourite statement just prior to the crisis about how wonderful things were going to be in the future... Dr. Pangloss again, came from the OECD. And this is both based on feedback from government bureaucrats who always think things are going to be wonderful. Uh, they've got to say that, of course, even if they don't believe so for their politicians, but it then goes into the econometric model that the OECD has and outcome their forecasts. And you couldn't say it better for getting it wrong. The current economic situation is in many ways better than we've experienced in years. Our central forecast remains quite benign a soft landing in the United States, a strong and sustained recovery in Europe. Wouldn't like to see a downturn, would you? <laughs> strong job creation and falling unemployment. Now, that was their vision. And what they were seeing and what they extrapolated forward were the cycles in unemployment and inflation I'm going to show you in this slide. We see inflation and unemployment, the, 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 the red line being unemployment, the blue line being inflation, trending down until the crisis, which they see as a separate event, suddenly unemployment goes through the roof and for a short while, as you can see from that, those, that uh, the slight dotted red line you can see across the slide there, that's zero. So for a short while the inflation rate fell from about 5% to minus 2. Okay. Now it turned around afterwards when the rescue hit in on a grand scale, but you can see that trend there heading down and right below zero. So there was a both a rapid increase in unemployment and a deflationary shock at the same time, which they simply did not, did not see coming, had no explanation for. And in fact, after the crisis, they now talk about them as if there are two completely separate events. One they're responsible for, the other was an exogenous shock. Now, here's Bernanke, after the event, trying to excuse himself and the profession in general for not seeing the crisis coming. And he said, yes, okay, we didn't predict the crisis, nor did we incorporate the effects of financial instability, which is, you know, that's a positive concession to actually say they left out something that after the event appeared to be important to them. I said, do these failures mean they're irrelevant or at least significantly flawed? Now, I think the Australian cricket team could have done with Bernanke in the last series. We needed a good spinner. Okay, here's the spin. I think the answer is a qualified no. Economic models are useful in the context for which they are designed. Most of the time, serious financial instability is not an issue. That's an intriguing look at the last 40 years, isn't it? <laughs> the standard models were designed for these non-crisis periods. Now, that's intriguing, because I never saw a warning saying, do not take this in case of crisis. <laughs> you know? okay. so, notably, they were part of the intellectual framework that helped deliver low inflation and stability in the two decades that began in the mid-1980s. He said, well, I'm sorry, as I said, that's just... <laughs> Utter self-serving bollocks. <laughs> Let's take another look at that data. This is the 18, 1980 to 2010 inflation and unemployment. And what I'm going to do here is include rising debt. I'll better do that more slowly. The black line is the level of private debt, ratio of private debt to GDP. 
Now, that is not the profile of a black swan, okay? That is something you, you don't see the crisis coming if you ignore that factor. If you do include it, holy shit, Batman, something's going to happen. And that was the perspective that I come from, which is the non-orthodox, largely post-Keynesian school of economics. So that was what I was taking a look at, but they were ignoring. And I want to just indicate the impact of leaving that factor out, because when you graph inflation against unemployment over time, so I'm just doing a graph here where the, the, uh, the, the dark is the beginning of the time period and the, the red is the end of the time period, and you can see, I'll just illustrate it in a moment for you, this is the blowout in un unemployment and inflation that they call the stagflationary period. And that, that phenomenon is what Milton Friedman used gleefully to help undermine what they called Keynesian economics beforehand, which actually came from Paul Samuelson, Samuelson far more than Keynes, but that was seen as invalidating the Keynesian period and that's why they had to bring in the monetarist controls, etc. This is the days of Tina. You all know Tina? You know? Maggie Thatcher's best friend. Okay. And then, of course, this is their period where they have a declining unemployment and declining inflation, and it's all heading towards this lovely point called equilibrium until what the shit was that? Okay. Now, notice over here you've got a very similar object. That is the actual data for America, smooth, so you don't see all the real day-to-day -day fluctuations. It's the smooth data from 1980 to 2010. Let's just tilt it up a bit, because I'm actually showing you two dimensions of a three-dimensional object. Uh, the dimension I've left out, as I'm displaying it here, is the ratio of private debt to GDP, which neoclassical economists will still assure you is uh, irrelevant to the economy. Let's tilt that up. Oh, it's bank lending, lending by banks to, to households and firms. Now, that alone wouldn't make me allege there's some sort of pattern on there because the rising level of private debt seems to be what causes the system to tip over from what looks like stability into instability. But to really verify that it's a pattern, this is a mathematical model I built in 1992 with one addition of included prices, which I didn't include in the 92 model. Exactly the same qualitative dynamics. Notice how the cycles there, now we're now looking at the cycles in inflation and unemployment, they're getting smaller, just as they're doing over here, though of course in the real world things are rather messier, but the same basic pattern, smaller and smaller volatility. The area of these later years before the crisis hits covers that little square there, the areas earlier cover the whole large area, larger employment, unemployment, larger inflation. Same sort of story here, and then suddenly bang, out to a breakdown. So what this model is generating is a period of diminishing cycles in inflation and unemployment followed by a breakdown. In other words, this model generates both phenomena in one. And I'm arguing that the Great Moderation and the Great Recession, as the neoclassicals first called it, were the same phenomenon. So what looks like heading towards equilibrium and sudden collapse in the real world happens exactly the same way when you model what's called Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, which has been the basis of my positive academic contribution for the last 20, 30 years, and it's including what's called complex systems dynamics in there as well. Now, why does the mainstream ignore that third dimension? Okay. Well, the logic is that debt is like a consenting act between adults. It doesn't affect anybody else. You can do whatever you like in your own home or somebody else's if they let you in. Um, so they ignore it. It's, they, they see no social impact from the level of private debt. And you might know the name Irving Fisher. 
okay? Probably for the negative reason that he made this famous statement right in the middle of the Wall Street crash that stocks have reached what appears to be a permanently high plateau. Yeah, the ultimate bad, bad prediction in finance. But after the event, he went back and unlike the London-day neoclassicals, he realised that to be so completely wrong about the economy, there had to be something wrong with his model. And he went and developed what he was called the debt deflation theory of great depressions, and Hyman Minsky really based his work more on Irving Fisher than on Keynes. The original concepts came from Fisher. So Fisher talked about what he called debt deflation, and this is Ben Bernanke's book, book of essays called Essays on the Great Depression, where he was regarded as the expert on what caused the Great Depression. Now, you'd think that if you were the expert, you'd consult what everybody else wrote and pay attention to it, and then make a considered judgment of what was the overall perspective. Well, here's his statement on Irving Fisher. He says, Fisher's idea was less influential in academic circles because of the count, talk, more influential with politicians, in other words. Uh, Roosevelt took it seriously. Uh, and, and that affected the policy that led to the, the, the New Deal and range of other policies in the 1930s. She said, Fisher's idea was less influential in academic circles because of the counter-argument that debt deflation, and take a good look at this sentence, represents no more than a redistribution from one group, debtors, to another group, creditors. Now, to begin with, I hope you're seeing the turkey there, because when somebody goes bankrupt, they don't pay their debts back. Okay? Even on that level, it's a naive statement of what happens when people go bankrupt. But he then says, following on from that proposition, an a priori, and again, this is where, when economists use the word a priori, Latin for before the, before the event, it's a set of notions you design before you look at the data, and once you've got those notions, you ignore the data. That's what's going on here. <laughs> so, absent implausibly large, implausibly large differences in marginal spending propensities among the groups, i.e. between debtors and creditors, pure, pure redistributions should have no macroeconomic effects. In other words, what they're seeing in debt is not a creation of anything new, it's a redistribution of existing money from one group to another. And unless there's some dramatic difference between the groups, there should be no macroeconomic impact. Now, I would hope that after the financial crisis that wisdom had gone out the window, but now it's still there with the fairies. Uh, and the, the basis of it is this model that Paul Krugman in particular promotes called the model of loanable funds which is the way they envisage what banks do and, and therefore why they ignore banks and their thinking. And with writing in his book, uh, End This Depression Now, exclamation mark, he said, think of, it, think of it this way, when debt is rising, it's not the economy as a whole borrowing more money. In other words, he's saying there's no link between the level of debt and the level of money. It is rather a case of less patient people, people whom for whatever reason want to spend sooner rather than later, borrowing from more patient people. Now, one thing I find funny about neoclassical economics, mainstream economics, is the extent to which they'll call themselves a value-free science, all three words I think are wrong, and then make value-laden statements throughout. Who's the good person, the patient or the impatient? Okay. Now, they're completely wrong, and I've got to say one thing I'm very pleased about being in London these days is that probably the most open-minded bank in the central bank of the world is the Bank of England. So I find myself having plenty of conversation with Bank of England staff. They listen to views from the outside the mainstream, so they're very, very good. And out of the blue, we had, I had no warning this paper was turning up. They published a fantastic paper that I've linked there uh, in its quarterly bulletin in 2014, saying that the Ronaldable Funds model of banking is simply structurally wrong. That's not how banks operate. They say banks are not intermediaries. They initiate loans, and when they do, that loan creates new money. 
And what they don't elaborate on, which I'm talking about here, is that also creates new demand. And the logic is quite simple. The model the mainstream has, this loanable funds model, says that the lender offsets the borrower's higher spending power because if you lend money in what we might call a person-to-person -person loan, if you lend somebody the taxi fare to get home, you've got to get the tube. Okay? You can't afford. If you give the money away, you can't spend it. Therefore, the increased spending power of the lender is offset by the, sorry, by the borrower is offset by the smaller lending spending power of the lender. So I can actually model that and take a look at expenditure. And imagine you have a patient person, an inpatient person, and a shop. And the patient person, the inpatient person wants to borrow money from the patient person, so they might borrow the amount of money B, so they can now spend money uh, both on the patient person, borrowing, buying something from the patient person, and also buying from the shop, but they can now spend more money to do it. Now, what I'm doing on the, on the diagonal of that, act, of that uh, table is showing expenditure. So the money comes out of the impatient person's account, a, big A plus big B plus little b, and then it gets spent on patient, which is big A, and the shop, B plus little b. But having done that, the patient person has now got B less to spend on both the impatient person and the shop. So if you look at total demand, you add up that, the, the, the negative sum of that diagonal, will give you aggregate demand. The sum of the off-diagonal elements is aggregate, aggregate expenditure. There's the loan. The impatient, therefore, spends more money. The patient person spends less, and one cancels the other out. That's the model they have. Now, the real world, and believe me, there's a big difference between what economists model and where we live. The real world is that the, the impatient person borrows from a bank and the bank gets an increase in their asset, which I'm not showing here, but in the bank accounts, which is where the money goes, the impatient has more spending power. There's no decline in the spending power of the patient agent. So the money created by the bank by the loan becomes additional spending power as well. You borrow money to spend it on something else. You don't borrow money to have it sitting in your account accumulating an interest bill for yourself. Okay. So what you therefore get out of that is the perspective that demand and income because they're, in a classic sense, your spending becomes somebody else's income, so the two are identical. Demand and income from the, come from the turnover of money you've already got, existing money, plus demand and income from new debt. And that's why the change in debt is so important. It's a major provider of additional demand, and that rising debt increases demand and income and also asset prices, because we, a large part of that money now, and frankly about all the, all the banks will ever lend to you now for, is speculating on shares or houses. They won't lend for anything stupid like a business. Yeah. Uh, but equally, when debt is falling, that reduces demand and will also reduce asset prices. So what you have is a relationship with the change in debt and the level of demand and also level of asset prices. And when you take, I'm going to be slightly mathematical here, take the rate of change of that, the differential, you get a relationship between acceleration in debt and change in asset prices and change in demand. Now, as you know, acceleration is much wilder than velocity, okay? So that change in, change in demand and the acceleration is more volatile again, and that's where a large part of the volatility in our economy comes from. So you can use both the change and the acceleration of debt to explain the boom before the crash, which was what they call the great moderation, the crash itself, because at that point in time, change in debt went from positive to negative, and went from positive acceleration to massively negative acceleration to achieve that, and the ups and downs of asset markets as well. And unfortunately, my 
term that I first coined, I know what the Vapors song is about. I think it's extremely apt for those who know what the lyrics of Turning Japanese are about. Uh, but we were turning Japanese, and I said that about in 2000, back into the first edition of Debunking Economics. And the reason we're turning Japanese is Japan did this first. Japan went into the biggest private debt bubble in the history of capitalism before the Netherlands caught up with them, as it happens. Back in Bednack in 19, the 1980s, and it crashed in 1990. So if you look at what the Japanese did, what I'm showing now is private debt to GDP across a whole range of countries. But notice the first one there is the, chi is the, is the Japanese bubble. And their level of private debt went from 140% of GDP, which is already high, as you can see, compared to the rest of the world, up to 225% in the peak after their crisis. The crisis always occurs before you reach the peak in private debt. And then they've been in this long, slow decline ever since. Meanwhile, America, and this is in the UK as well, this is the UK data here, began its bubble shortly after the Big Bang, the liberalisation of the banks, led to a small crash back in 1990, and after the recovery from that crash, then England was America. America, Australia, et cetera, et cetera, all got caught in a private debt bubble. So we had, if we were in empirical science, which we're not, we're neither empirical nor a science, uh, we would have spotted all that and done something about it. Instead, we all fell into the same trap. And China, we'll talk a bit about in the talk here, China's entered the trap after our global financial crisis. It's now doing the same thing, only, as usual for China, far faster than anybody else. Now, what this next chart shows you is the sort of thing which, if economics was an empirical discipline, there'd be millions of people out there exploring it. I've, I've been talking about this for 10 years now. I've been showing graphs of this relationship for a decade. I still have yet to see anybody attempt an econometric paper apart from people who actually work with me on this data. But this is showing the relationship between the rate of the change in private debt in Japan as a percentage of GDP and the unemployment rate. And if those of you know correlations, can you spot it? <laughs> the correlation coefficient between the change in debt and the level of unemployment in Japan is minus 0.91 since 1965. We're talking over half a century. That's phenomenal to get a correlation like that. You'd think you'd be taking a look at the evidence, but again, that a priori notion that I mentioned earlier comes into play. And because a priori, it's a pure distribution, they don't even do the testing of this data. It's finally turning up, I might say in some papers, people like Maurice Schulerich certainly have been making a, a strong case about it, Claudia, Claudia Borio, but these are people who are out, slightly outside the mainstream. The mainstream is still ignoring this information. Now, Looking at the United States, this is the correlation for the same data for the United States, unemployment and change in debt since 1990. That's so close to a perfect correlation, it looks like a Rorschach plot, for those who remember their old psychology. That's minus 0.93 since 1990. I often get people saying correlation isn't causation. When you get correlations that high, it's about time you look for a causal explanation, which of course I've done. Now, given what Japan has been through, I think Japan gives us the unfortunately the best case scenario for what we can expect going forward in the, in the modern world because they did the same stupid thing we did 18 years before we did it. They haven't addressed the causes, they're still obsessing about government debt, though they've let it get to 2.5 times GDP, but they think that's the only thing they need to do, they've ignored the level of private debt. So what I've done in this chart is I've taken that same bunch of graphs I showed you earlier, 
different countries' private debt to GDP ratios. And I've now moved Japan 18 years, so its crisis coincides with ours. And therefore, at a heuristic level, what it goes through is what we can expect to go through if we don't have a different set of policies. <coughs> and you could see that it reached a peak of private debt of 225% of GDP. It then slowly delevered over the next 15 years. And for the next 10 years, it's been bouncing around at much the same level of private debt. So for that whole 25-year period, credit, which is normally a major driver of demand, has been absent and actually negative as a driver of demand in Japan. Now, they could get away with that to some extent because they could export to the Ponzi scheme that the rest of the world was caught up in. Unfortunately, so far as we're aware, there is no Ponzi scheme on Mars. So we can't, ex we can't collectively export to Mars, which we'd need to do to be in as good a situation as the Japanese have been. Now, not only are we in a bubble of, you know, of historic proportions in the post-war period, it's also, when you look at the data and normalise it over time, it's the biggest bubble in the history of capitalism. This is taking American data, and I had to patch together three time series to make up the data before 1950 which you can see all the data from here on is data recorded by the Federal Reserve. And you can see the ratio of private debt was rising all the way through with a couple of big humps until this final downturn here. The data for the 1930s was by the Census Department. And when they look at the data without trying to fit the two data series together, it's up here somewhere above that level. But applying the overlaps and saying, well, let's use the Federal Reserve's definition and go backwards, that's the pattern I get going back to 1834. So we'd use the same definition the Federal Reserve uses now, that's the pattern we'd find in the data. And clearly, on that basis, the highest level we've ever had. In fact, we're trying to recover now from a level of private debt which using this renormalisation is higher than the peak during the Great Depression. Which I think a basic expression there is good luck. Try doing it. Now, Non-orthodox economists saw this coming. As David said, only the mainstream didn't see it coming. The first person who really warned of it was one of your own, Wynne Godley. Wynne died about two years ago, I think, or four, five years ago, pardon me, about 2010. But he began warning of the inevitability of a crisis using what modern monetary theory calls stock flow consistent accounting back in 1998. I began warning of it in 2006. And we were both with different perspectives focusing on the same thing, that the trend in private debt was unsustainable, it had to turn around, and when that turn did, trend, trend did turn around, it would cause a crisis in the economy. Now, the mainstream ignored us because, so far as they're concerned, the trend we were looking at didn't matter. Well, good luck for that. Now, that's showing you the relationship so far in the real economy. They also apply in the asset markets. And what I'm now looking at is the relationship between the acceleration of debt, so the rate of change of the rate of change, of mortgage debt, and I'm normalising that against GDP. So I've got the rate of change of the rate of change of debt divided by GDP, and I'm plotting that against change in house prices. And here I'm looking just at mortgage debt in America. So all those geniuses who made a fortune out of the housing market, they were riding a debt bubble without being aware of it. The correlation there over, again, 25 years is 0.77. I must admit to a bit of cowardice here. I didn't test this empirically because I simply, even though I knew that the logical step was that since change in debt was related to the level of asset prices, acceleration should be related to the rate of change, but I simply didn't think the data would support it. Then an English economist called Mike Begg came out with a paper where he did the econometrics and talked about the Phoenix effect. 
and got it right. So I didn't do this first, but once I, once I saw Mike did it, I thought, stupid me for being a coward, dive in and check the data, and those are the correlations I could find in the housing market. A similar thing applies in the stock market when you look at the relationship between acceleration and margin debt and change in stock prices. This is the S&P 500 versus margin debt, acceleration over time. Correlation there is 0.53. And again, because you're working with the rate of change of a rate of change against another rate of change, the fact that you get a correlation at all, given how messy economic data is, to, to me still, I find remarkable. But you can see the, the depth of the downturn, both back in 2000, when the uh, NASDAQ bubble blew, and the one in 2008 when the market totally blew. And it even applies in China. I've just put this data together in the last couple of days, so it's the first time I've actually shown this in public. This is the Shanghai, the red line is the Shanghai index, and people are talking about the Shanghai index crashing now. They don't seem to be aware that it also crashed back in 2007. But when it crashed back in 2007, there was no such thing as margin debt in China. You know, of course, once China makes something, it makes something very quickly. So they went from, I'm not joking, the level here when the data first turns up, the level of margin debt compared to GDP is 0.000014% of GDP. It's a couple of yuan, a couple of hundred million yuan, but trivial. They rapidly rose to having 2% of GDP in margin debt, and most of that rise has been in the last year. I wonder why the stock market boomed and crashed. Looking at the, now the, the same relationship I mentioned beforehand, the acceleration of margin debt against the change in the index. And again, this won't matter when margin debt is trivial. Okay? It only comes into play when margin debt becomes substantial, which is over, like over, in this case, over half a percent of GDP. So the red line is the change in the index, the blue line is the acceleration of margin debt. And what the Chinese Politburo Bureau is trying to do right now is stop the deceleration of margin debt. Well, good luck to that. Okay? It's just not the sort of thing one can control. The correlation there, 0.69 since 2014 and 0.87 since 2015. So this is what's driving the downturn in the market, and it's an irresistible force, given the scale of money we're talking about there versus the relatively trivial sums that the uh, Communist Party is trying to show to keep the market up. So that's the instability we're dealing with, and the mainstream completely ignores instability. In fact, they see capitalism as a system that heads towards equilibrium. Now, instability is not necessarily a bad thing. There are some very creative things about instability. For example, anybody who walks out of this room is being unstable. Okay? Sony engineers found some years ago, they tried to design a robot that walked. I think it's called Ebo or something like that. And what they did was they thought, well, the most important thing is to maintain the center of gravity as it walks. And they found the thing could stumble ahead, couldn't move. So they finally realized they had to let it fall. And as you fall and take a step, you're unstable until you land on one foot and land on the other. Okay? So walking is actually a disequilibrium process. If you want to maintain equilibrium, it'll be about two days before you walk out the door. So let's talk about the undesirable instability now, which Minsky focused upon. And he said, capitalism is inherently flawed, being prone to booms, crises, and depressions. And he said, this instability is viewed to characteristics financial system must possess if it is to be consistent with full-blown capitalism. In other words, he's saying it's not the sort of thing you can reform out of existence. 
is something that fundamentally has to be there. And he said, basically, such a system will be capable of generating signals that induce and accelerate a desire to invest. So rising profit induce, brings that inducement to, to um, invest more and of financing that investment. So you borrow the money to finance the investment when the level of investment you wish to undertake exceeds your retained earnings. And he called the model the financial instability hypothesis and the cycles, debt and non-equilibrium behaviour at the complete centre of his thinking. Again, very much unlike the neoclassical world where all three don't exist. Okay? Cycles, exogenous shocks, debt, irrelevant. And non-equilibrium, nah, economy is always in equilibrium or near to it. So Minsky, on the other hand, started from a very, very different point and said the natural starting point for analysing the relation between debt and income. Now, according to the mainstream, there is no relationship. Okay? Is to take an economy with a cyclical past, and according to the mainstream, there's no such economy, that is now doing well. He said the inherited debt structure of the economy reflects the history which includes a period in the not-too-distant past where it did not do well. So we go back here to, say, the 1990s, which is the last major recession before the, the boom of the telecom boom, then the dot-com boom, and then the subprime boom. And he said accepted liability structures at that time are based on some margin of safety, which you want after a crash has occurred. So you've got enough money, when you borrow money, you've got enough of a buffer left over to cover things when things go wrong, because you now expect them to go wrong after the crisis. But as the period over which the economy does well lengthens, two things become evident in boardrooms. And notice he's talking about boardrooms there. He's not talking about the mythical world of perfect competition, which is the neoclassical fantasy to describe the economy. He's talking about Wall Street, large corporations, firms that borrow money, plan investment on a large scale, and so on. He said they realise that easy, existing debts are easily validated, so it was easy to repay the debt, more easier than they thought it would be, and units that were heavily in debt prospered, it paid to lever. So this changes expectations. People think the margin of safety they had was too high. So they're willing to accept a larger level of leverage and to take on more speculative investments. And he said, as a result of this, the amount of debt used to finance various types of activities increases. That therefore increases the weight of debt in financing the market price of capital assets. So we saw a direct link between the level of debt and the price of capital assets, again, which the mainstream argues doesn't happen. And it increases investment and transforms the economy from one that's just stable after a crisis into a boom economy. So you get a period of speculative excess coming out of that. And he said, therefore, stable growth is inconsistent with the way in which we determine investment in our economy. So therefore, and this is what, when I read this, I thought this is one of the deepest insights I've ever seen, because I've read so many critiques of capitalism and so many pay-ins to it as well. Um, but this was the first time I saw a critique which I thought was well-founded. A lot of Marxian critics will say, oh, capitalism will tend towards stagnation. That wasn't what I was seeing around me. I was seeing euphoric behaviour. And what Minsky said was the fundamental instability of a capitalist economy is upward. The tendency to transform doing well into a speculative investment boom is the basic instability in a capitalist economy. And then, of course, what causes the downturn is you borrow money for ventures that fail and you then have an over overhang of bad debt which crashes the economy later. So it's a non-equilibrium process and spelling it out step by step, it goes something like this. Again, you go back in historical time. Now, history and time are two things which conventional economics has attempted to abolish, which is pretty hard to do, but they've certainly ignored it in economics classes, so I'm bringing them both back in at Kingston. But historical time. So you look back, you know there's been a... If you're looking at 1992, 93, you had a crisis back in 1990. 
That debt-induced recession in the recent past means that both firms and banks are conservative about the amount of debt they'll take on. And this is not what economists, neoclassicals, even good guys like Joe Stiglitz, call asymmetric information, as though one has information about the future. I'm using a quote from the editor of a major journal there, by the way, information about the future. Uh, um, it, they both share the same expectations about an uncertain future. So they're both conservative. Both borrowers and lenders are conservative about the amount of debt they'll take on. Therefore, you only fund conservative projects, but because the economy has recovered from the crisis, most of those projects succeed. That therefore means that both firms and banks think, oh, we were too conservative last time round. They accept a high level of risk the next time round, higher debt to equity ratio, a higher valuation on assets, and you get self-fulfilling expectations that mean there's a decline with the decline in the reversion to risk which has gone on, you have an increase in investment, and that investment helps the economy expand faster. So partly there's a, a virtuous circle there. But you also get rising asset prices, which means any fool can make money on a rising market. And they therefore think they're geniuses. You get an increased willingness to lend, and as I've shown in the verbal argument earlier about patient versus impatient, all that nonsense, the increased willingness to lend increases the money supply and that also increases the demand on which this, these expectations are based. So you get a, a growth in the economy coming out of this, riskier investments being enabled, of course, more of which are going to fail, so you're accumulating more bad debts as you go forward, rising asset speculation, and you get what he finally called the euphoric economy. If anybody wants to do a so it's combined literary and statistical PhD one of these days, doing an analysis of the word euphoric to describe expectations in the financial times over, over history would be quite an intriguing study. Long before they read Minsky, they were talking about how the state of mind in the city was euphoric. Now, this allows what Minsky calls Ponzi financiers to turn up. And their capitalists, well, that's actually an insult to capitalists to call them capitalists, but still, who have a cash flow from their investments less than their debt servicing costs. In other words, they're fundamentally insolvent. How do they survive? They sell assets on a rising market, and they're desperately trying to maintain a cash flow by borrowing more money as their cash declines until they can sell an asset. So they've got a desperate demand for debt because they're fundamentally insolvent. They've got to borrow the service existing debt before they can make those asset sales. So they have a totally interest rate insensitive demand for finance, which is why you can't stop this stuff by putting up rates. And my favorite Ponzi is a guy called Christopher Scase, who none of you thankfully know. And he was an Australian Ponzi speculator who got his money from a firm called, uh, uh, from, uh, what's it called? I've forgotten the firm's name now, but Larry Adler was the boss of it and his son Rodney. And Larry and Rodney used to play a game of swapping roles of meeting Chris when he came asking for another loan. And the game was, put the rate up by 1% and see if he says no. And he never did. They got to our charging at 25%, and he still said yes. The reason being, if he didn't get the money, he was bankrupt the next day, most of the time. Now, initially, you have a profit, asset speculation like this is profitable, but that also reduces people's sensitivity to debt and interest rates. It drives up the supply and demand for finance. It can push up market rates as well but you also get a change in income distribution going on in the background. Because the economy is booming, wages can rise, as they did in the early 2000 boom, and the cost of raw materials will also rise. You pay for those on an open market, there is a supply and demand constraint for them, their prices will rise, which changes your profit outcomes. Now, eventually, that rate of growth of debt will break for some internal reason. You don't need an external trigger like a central bank putting up rates. Normally, they provide the trigger anyway, 
Okay, so you get two reasons for it, but it's all internal dynamics. The changing cost structure, which the boom itself has caused, will undermine the profit expectations that led to the boom. The Ponzi's are necessarily losing money. All it takes is them to miss one repayment and they're bankrupt. And that's often what happens. The reason Scase is one of my favourite Ponzi's is that he made a takeover bid of $3 billion for MGM. A guy called Kokorian. Does anybody know the name Kokorian? The leading uh, venture capitalist and capitalist raider as well. He was on the board of MGM, didn't trust the uh, Scase, investigated his finance, finances, concluded he was insolvent, told MGM board don't sell to Scase. They didn't sell to Scase. One week after they decided not to sell to him, Scase went bankrupt. Remember he made a $3 billion takeover bid? He couldn't pay a $12 million loan instalment the next week. That's why he folded. And that's why they're the early canaries in the coal mine, because they can crash instantly if they can't roll over those debts. So they're the fragile ones. I know the bloke with the weird hairdo in America might go that way one of these days, but I've been waiting for that to happen for a long time and it hasn't, so maybe I better not get my hopes up until after he becomes president. Okay. Okay. Now, many of those euphoric investments also fail too. You're making, I mean, my favourite example of euphoric investment would be somebody in, um, I don't know what part of London it would be, but somewhere that they, where Rastafarians are popular who thinks Rastafarian hairdo is going to take off and borrows a large amount of money to buy horseshit, which is how you make Rastafarian hairdos. Um, they fold. They have euphoric expectations that aren't going to work. At the other end of the spectrum, people who are raising horses for genuine reasons, they take out conservative positions and then find the interest rates have risen and they can no longer service their debts. What do they do? They sell assets into what they think is a broad market. But when they do it, the market is very narrow. It can crash with the flood of new stock being put into sale. So you get a, the trend in rising asset prices turns around and when that does, the Ponzi's are the first ones to fold because they can't sell assets for profit anymore and they're already bankrupt and nobody's going to roll the debt over for them anymore. They're going to fold. That's why your most prominent business people, often being Ponzi's in nature, are the first ones to fold when a crisis hits. Asset prices collapse, debt to equity ratios rise in the process, the expansion of the money supply goes into reverse, investment evaporates, you're back where you started. Now that's pretty much a description of 1993 to 2007. Okay? But we've had several cycles like that beforehand. What's special about 2007 is the situation that applied after the crisis occurred, which had been built up over a number of cycles like this. So the inflation rate at the time can be a major determinant of what happens next, and also the size of the government sector. If you have high inflation, which is what applied back in the 80s, there's huge wage pushes and, of course, the OPEC price rises at that time, People blame OPEC for the 1970s and 80s crises. I think that if it hadn't been for OPEC, we would have had a deflationary crisis possibly back there. They put up the price of oil so much and wages were rising so much that the rising price level let people who got into debt problems pay their debts back as the cash flow just rose because of inflation. But you get low economic growth because investment's not taking place, and that's a, what you would call a Keynesian explanation for stagflation, which Minsky had first rate back in, I think, 1982. And the cycle will start again after debt levels fall once more. With low inflation, that's the situation we're in now, debts can't be repaid out of the cash flow, and you get a chain of bankruptcies that affect even businesses that weren't speculative, and you get a depression. Now, the reason to avoid a depression is big government, because the, big, the spending that they do is anti-cyclical. The spending, the, the taxation revenue depends upon employment and profits. The spending depends upon unemployment. 
when that when 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 the tonnage goes down, government spending necessarily rises. And that automatic stabiliser, as known in the normal literature, I see as a way of providing cash flow for companies they wouldn't otherwise have. And with that cash flow, they can remain solvent. And that's the major role of the government deficit plays. But you'll get a cycle again after you reduce debt levels once more. So I, what I've been doing is building up mathematical models of Minsky. And I know that looks a bit on the complicated side. I'll take you through it in a moment. But that is a model which, as I said, I developed in 1992. I've added in prices recently to make the dynamics more realistic. And I know that looks like a complicated mess. So of course, like a typical academic, I'm going to show you more of it. Because actually, however, what I'd call simple but complex, and this is an important distinction. People think that to get a model which has complicated dynamics, you need to have complicated internal structure. But the whole idea of what's called complex systems says that complex behavior emanates from simple rules. And I'm going to show you just how simple the rules are behind this model, because as complicated as the diagrams are, it actually boils down to three literally irrefutable statements. In other words, if you disagree with these, why don't you hop out of the shard too and disagree with gravity? It's about as sensible. The first statement is the employment rate will rise if economic growth exceeds the sum of population growth in growth and labour productivity. And so the economy grows faster than population growth occurs and people become productive, the employment rate will rise. That's just a, a dynamic way of stating an empirical fact. The second one is wages share of output will rise if money wage demands exceed the sum of inflation and growth in labour productivity. Now, one of the reasons wages have been falling over time is we've been getting compensation for inflation, but not for labour productivity. If we'd got wages have been increased because of productivity as well as inflation, the worker's share of output wouldn't have dropped as much as it has in the last 20 or 30 years. But that's another empirical fact. But the third fact is actually simpler. It'll look more complicated when you first take a look at it. And that's saying the ratio of private debt to GDP will grow if the rate of growth of debt exceeds the sum of inflation plus the rate of economic growth. That's also a straight out fact. It's just two ratios and splitting them apart. So those are three irrefutable statements. You can argue that I've left out other ones that matter and I have left out the role of the government here because I want to illustrate just a pure capitalist economy right now. And you can also argue that I've left out important determinants of each of those variables when I put a model together. Um, but I want to show you just with those statements the sort of behaviour that emanates from it. And it's not something you can work out using verbal logic alone. This is one reason I'm a fan of proper mathematical modelling in economics, not the garbage that neoclassicals do where they presume equilibrium and go from there and work with difference equations rather than differential equations and all sorts of simplistic things like that that they think are complicated. But because you can't deduce this sort of system just by verbal logic alone. When I, and I'll explain the model in a moment, when you model those three variables together, you get two possible outcomes when you don't have a government sector and you don't have bankruptcy. One is what can be called a good equilibrium, where the system converges over time to this equilibrium, where there's a finite ratio of private debt to GDP, a positive employment rate, and workers have a constant share of output. That's the good equilibrium. The bad equilibrium is an infinite debt ratio. Remember, I've got no, bank bank no bankruptcy here and no government to counteract what happens in the private sector. So this is an Austrian dream, which I'm proving is an Austrian nightmare. Okay? Get rid of the government and enforce all contracts, and you'll end up in the black hole of debt. So you get infinite debt, zero employment, and zero workers' share. And I'll now bring up that model and simulate it here. 
This is a software package I call Minsky, by the way, for obvious reasons. And it's uh, open source, and you can download it from SourceForge quite freely. And what I've got, I'll show you quickly, setting up the system that I, that I built the model on, a, a cyclical model by an American economist called Richard Goodwin, which was actually based on the model in, in Marx's Capital, the verbal model in Chapter 25 of Volume 1 of Capital. And that was just had a cycle between wages and employment, the first two equations, effectively. And when you put those equations together, rather than getting equilibrium, you get a system which cycles. Employment and, and, and uh, wages share both cycle. If I plot one against the other, I get a closed curve. Now, what I added to that model was debt. And I therefore had capitalists, when their desire to invest exceeded retained earnings, they'd borrow money from the bank to do it. And I'm modelling this with a simply linear set of equations. So a lot of economists, including non-orthodox ones, make a song and dance about behaviour and how important it is to model behaviour carefully. This has got the simplest possible model of behaviour. I've got a linear relationship between the level of employment and the wage demands workers make. Just a straight line. Okay? And equally for capitalists, I've got a linear relationship between the rate of profit and the amount of investment they want to do. Now, you'd think something that simple couldn't possibly model anything like you see in the real economy. But what struck me about this model when I first built it back in 1992 is the behaviour you're about to see. Remember again that neoclassicals talk about the great moderation, for which they took credit, where cycles were diminishing, and then the crisis, which is somebody else's fault. Okay? They both happen in this model. If you watch the cycles that are going to happen in employment and wages share of output, you'll see the cycles are getting smaller. I'll speed it up a bit there. So the cycles for a while are diminishing. The employment cycles are clearly getting smaller. Wages cycles is getting smaller. Wages, the wage ratio, the wages share of output is also, as you can see, trending down. But that doesn't matter because it gives us stuff about workers anyway. Okay? That's my profession. Okay? I'm channeling. Okay? And notice the debt ratio here is declining. So that's, that's in a situation where I've set up the level of profit, the, the aggressiveness of capitalists to be quite passive. So I'm showing you the good equilibrium here. And what they saw, what the neoclassicals saw, was that's what they thought was happening. They didn't at all factor debt into their thinking. What's happening over here, though, the debt ratio is going heading towards a stable level. It's stabilising at about 30% of GDP. Now, what I'm going to now do is change it so I look at a more aggressive capitalist who are more likely to borrow to invest and notice the change in the structure. I'll slow that down a bit, it's going too quickly. The cycles are getting smaller, so the great moderation appears to be happening. But then without warning, the cycles start to expand. Notice that the loop here is getting larger. And notice the debt ratio is now well above 200% of GDP. Notice wages are declining quite seriously here, not stabilising. And ultimately, you get a complete breakdown. Now, I won't go all the way to the breakdown there because it's unrealistic to have linear relationships because when I say there's a straight-line relationship between the rate of profit and the level of investment, I'm arguing that at a certain level of investment, capitalists go around smashing up factories. Now, they don't. Okay. So the non-linearity just says, no, when the profit rate falls towards, towards zero, their investment also falls towards zero. But when it gets high, they become euphoric and invest more money. So if I bring in a non-linear relationships here, 
and I include prices in the dynamics as well, then I get something that looks much more like the crisis we actually had because all the volatility is on the downside. So the model, again, when you look at it, appears to be cycling in towards equilibrium. Pardon me stopping and pausing, although I might make it, make it a lot slower and just give it time to happen dynamically while I talk. But if you're looking at the cycles in employment, they're getting smaller. And now looking at inflation as well, because prices are here, that's also trending down. You appear to be reaching this wonderful period of equilibrium, but you're ignoring the ratio of private debt to GDP. And the red line here is private debt, which is getting higher and higher. You can see it getting higher over here as well. And then as the simulation goes on, notice the profit share reaches at what looks like a nice equilibrium. So from a capitalist point of view, nothing could be better. Workers are getting less, but again, the usual story, who cares about them? Inflation is now turning into deflation. Employment starts to collapse. And at some time in the future, this is taking about 25 years to happen, suddenly the profit rate collapses as well. And if I let it go on indefinitely, profit turns negative, and you end up in a complete black hole. Now what's going on is, in a verbal sense, the declining workers' share is being offset by rising bankers' share until such time as deflation starts to increase the rate of compounding of debt. And at that point, the workers can't cut their wages fast enough to make up for the increasing bankers' share. More money goes to bankers rather than capitalists. Profit and investment collapses and the economy collapses in toto as well. And that's what I think we've been through. So these are the various models shown again here on the slides. So rather than those two phenomena, the great moderation and the great recession and inequality, rising inequality, which even the mainstream now concedes is happening, rather than being separate phenomena, they all emerge from an extremely simple behavioural structural model. And this is why people from my side of economics emphasise on getting the structure right, being realistic about the nature of capitalism. Get that realism right and the structure itself will tell you 95% of what you need to know. Adding the behavioural stuff on the edge is, is frippery rather than the focus of how modelling should be done. So you get a decline in volatility in employment and inflation before the crisis. You get rising inequality because even though in this model firms are the only ones borrowing money, socially the group that pay for it are workers. Workers' wages drop, debt level rises, profit remains much the same until the crisis occurs. So workers pay for the higher level of debt. And you get a crisis when that rising debt service exceeds the declining wage payments. Now, I first built that model in 1992, August 1992, as it happens. So I simulated before the events that happened that are now part of folklore actually occurred. And both the model and the historical record imply that debt crises are endemic to capitalism. Okay? You can only avoid the crisis if somehow you can reduce the level of private debt. That's the essential thing to do. Now, the banking system already has a way of doing that. For, for corporations, of course, bankruptcy, if a firm can't pay its debts, it goes bankrupt. And there's no way you can make a corporation pay its debt after it's gone bankrupt. It no longer exists. But for households, of course, they're trying to make sure we pay our debts. Okay? And even if you go bankrupt as a household, you're still alive after the experience. So we're trying, people are now trying to enforce that debtors must pay their debts as if that's essential to capitalism. In my opinion, it's essential to capitalism failing. We have to get to the stage where debtors' rights are greater than creditors' rights because if you enforce creditors' rights, you end up in a black hole. So the trouble, you can't rely upon this mechanism alone because using this, what's, what's really an episodic 
approach for bankruptcy, where you make a loss provisions for a fraction of your loans to go bad, doesn't work when the whole system goes bad. It'll actually amplify the downturn initially. So we need a systemic rent remedy for these systemic tendencies towards excessive debt and crises. And in the opposition to what's known as auto-liberalism, which is the... Can you anybody guess who, who's the main proponent of auto-liberalism these days? Okay, okay. Schwabler. Okay. This is the guy who's enforcing the debt turns on Greece. Okay. It's, there's a particular form of Austrian economics called auto-liberalism, where auto means order. And the major part of this is you must enforce contracts, you must pay your debts. Well, that, for me, is a recipe for the collapse of capitalism. So we need a policy which emphasises the need to write debt off. And something that stops us doing that is we have a pro-creditor philosophy which partially comes out of the fact that all of us confuse the lending we might do between each other with bank lending. Now, if I borrow money from one of you in the audience and I don't repay you, I've effectively robbed you. Okay, you, had to, you had to work to earn the money that you're giving to me. You can't spend it when you've given it to me. If I don't return it to you, I've taken money out of your pocket that you worked to earn. And therefore, we think you should repay your debts. It's part of our natural thinking about interpersonal relationships. Because the person-to-person -person lending, the, lend, the lender has to save before doing the lending. And therefore, the non-repayment is akin to theft. But what banks do is create money by double-entry bookkeeping. And this is what the Bank of England emphasised in their, their paper as well. Debt and money, the, the money that's being lent, are both created at the same time at minimal cost. I have a wonderful anecdote about that coming out of a, a service station owner in New Zealand who applied for a, a, um, more, a overdraft to run his service station or petrol station to the um, Westpac Bank, which is a leading Australian bank. And they approved his application for a $100,000 overdraft. And he accessed his, he got the note that your overdraft's been approved, and he accessed the account the next day, and he had a $10 million overdraft. What happened? Some of you would have seen bank keyboards. They've got a double zero key, okay? The person typing in type 100000, either the decimal point was defective or they didn't press it, double zero, $10 million was created. Now, of course, he took one look at $10 million, grabbed his Chinese passport and headed back to China, <laughs> having withdrawn seven million. Okay. They finally got him back. He's now serving a jail sentence. Should actually be working in cyber security. Uh, but that's a classic illustration where one less keystroke, effectively, created 100 times as much money. Now, there's no other industry where you can create 100 times as much by doing about 10% less. Okay? So there's something very strange about money creation, which we have ordinary people, non-economists, get it. It's economists who have a hard time understanding this one. So in that sense, when you look at a genuine lending, where the lending goes astray, non-repayments akin to writing, writing off an unsold stock of a good you produce too much of anyway, which happens all the time in normal industries. And we should see this as a normal part of capitalism, which loss provisions are for a bank, but we need also now to look at it at the systemic level because if we let this get out of control, we have a crisis like the one we fell into in 2008. So there are two solutions. The counter-cyclical spending by the government, which is the current method we use right now, which I see as an indirect method. Now, it works, okay? If it hadn't been for government spending, we would be in a very deep hole now. We wouldn't need to go to Greece to see unemployment at 25%. It'd be happening here. Okay. Government spending is the, the major factor that stopped the economy going down here and globally when the crisis hit. But it didn't stop the trend towards excessive private debt in the first place. 
In fact, in some ways, it encouraged it to go beyond the levels it would have met without a government sector to do the rescue. Quite possibly, we would have had a crisis back in 1990. And it only indirects, indirectly addresses the question of inequality. And I think we need to attack that directly. So I actually am arguing in favour of not so much regular debt jubilees as making the debt to GDP ratio, the private debt to GDP ratio, a target of government policy and to reduce it whenever it gets out of hand and reduce it by using the state's capacity to create money. Because just as the banks can create money in a double entry bookkeeping way, so does the government. And a major part of the myths we currently see in the debate over government spending and what it should do in this maniacal desire to achieve a surplus is seeing the government as a consumer of money when it's actually a producer of money. Okay? The government produces money by running a deficit just as banks produce money by lending out more than they get back in repayments. So it's a natural part of the government's role to be creating that deficit. Not doing it is partly why we're getting up as stuffed up as we are now. But we can use that capacity directly to create money into people's bank accounts. Now, quantitative easing, as is being done now, is putting it in the bank's bank accounts, which we can't spend. But putting it into private accounts on a per capita basis, which would be regardless of whether you are a debtor or a saver. Okay, this is the big argument against debt jubilees I've always got is, well, that means people who got into debt got rewarded where people who saved get punished. If you give it to everybody, regardless of their status, there's no discrimination in the population, but you can require the debtors to pay their debt down, to reduce their debts, whereas the savers keep the cash. Now, that would directly reduce the inequality because a drop on the level of debt will cause a change in distribution of income in favour of workers who are the low-income ones in our society, and it will also directly reduce the private debt. So that's the main reason I argue for a debt jubilee rather than just government spending. Now, to show you the, the, the mechanism behind why a boom is caused by excessive debt and why a slowdown in the rate of growth of debt causes a crisis for everyone, put a little spreadsheet in this, in this system, and I want to illustrate what happened in China. So I just hope this works. Let's say I have an embedded Excel inside my presentations before, but it should work. Watching the spinning wheel. Okay, Excel, where are you? Good, here we go. Okay, so what I'm showing here is why China's had a crisis. And what I'm doing, I know the numbers are rather small to see, but look at the blue line. I'll explain each of the pieces. The red, the, the orange line, is GDP per year. And I'm just taking a, a GDP that starts at a trillion dollars, whatever, and a, G, and a debt level that also starts at a trillion dollars. So there's the GDP. The blue line is the, rate, is the level of, of private debt. And what I've got is I've got the GDP growing at 10% per annum, which is roughly the rate of growth of China's nominal GDP, according to their statistician, who's under orders to report numbers like that. Uh, and I've got debt growing at 22% per annum. Now, the reason being that if I have the debt ratio growing at 22% per annum, then starting in 2008 at a debt ratio of 100% of GDP, by, 19, by 2015, I get a ratio of 186%, which is roughly the actual trajectory that China has been on. What that means is total expenditure and income in this society are the sum of GDP plus the change in debt, and that's what this grey line is about. And what I've got happening is for the first five years, the change in debt is 22% of GDP each year. And what that means is the change of total demand, even though GDP is growing at 10% per annum, total demand is growing at 11% per annum. 
Then in the final year, I have the rate of growth of debt slowing down from 22% to 10%, which is the same rate of growth of GDP. What does it do? Well, it means that change in debt goes from plus, or ch change in total demand goes from 268 million to minus 87 million or billion. It turns around that rapidly. So a slowdown in the rate of growth of debt is enough to reduce demand from one year to the next. And that's why a crisis occurs. If I, for example, have the final year of rate of, death being, rate of growth of debt being zero, so debt just doesn't grow, watch what happens to the gray line and the blue line. Okay. So a simple slowdown in the rate of growth of debt is enough to cause an economic downturn. And Again, if I change the factor of the initial debt ratio, let's say we start a debt ratio of just 20% of GDP, much smaller. Notice the blue line is still rising after the slowdown. Even when I had the debt slowdown, slowdown to zero, if I have the rate of growth of debt slowing from 22% to the same rate of growth as the GDP itself, you barely notice it. In other words, these crises don't matter at low levels of private debt to GDP. They only become serious at high levels and a colleague of mine who's a philanthropist and billionaire um, has looked at empirical data and said that looking at all the crises that have occurred in capitalism in the last one and a half centuries, they've all occurred when the private debt ratio has been 1.5 times GDP and when the, that ratio has grown by 20% or more over a five-year period. Now, most of the world is already in that situation. And that's why we have to do something about the level of private debt. Whether you agree with my debt jubilee or not, we have to reduce private debt because we've reached what I might call peak debt. Now, I've said there's peak debt everywhere except China. I first gave this presentation two months ago, modified a bit for today. That's why I've left a strike through there because when I wrote it, I said, uh, we'll be the next bubble to burst. Well, it's since burst, okay? And now let's look at the rate of growth of private debt in, in China versus the rate of growth in America and Japan. And that's why I said the Chinese always do things much faster than everybody else. It took the Chinese six years to increase their private debt by as much as Japan and America did in 17. And when you look at the rate of change of debt, it's plummeted for all countries post the crisis except China. And its rate of growth of debt was as high as 35% of GDP in one year early on. This is all government policy. They basically told the banks to lend because that would overcome the impact of the, of the downturn in their export market. So when that falls back to the same level we see in the rest of the world, aggregate demand in the rest of the world will fall, the whole world, because a large part of the demand comes from growing credit. China is the only place with large expanding credit right now. When that stops expanding, demand in the global economy will also fall. So it's not just something which means a rebalancing, it's a decline overall in the rate of growth of aggregate demand. So the real cause of the decline in growth rates we've seen since the crisis has got nothing to do with the secular stagnation arguments that people like Summers make, except for the fact that declining population growth will be a factor in the countries where that's happening. But it's because you can no longer get sustained acceleration or even growth in private debt. And therefore you're going to get asset markets being as correlated as they are now and as volatile as they are now, with QE the only thing that keeps them up. And unfortunately, super cities like the one we live in becoming unaffordable because of that impact as well. And as I said, a crisis crash is inevitable. I wrote this one, as I said, uh, two months before the crisis. Uh, but we're now into the danger zones. For ch the China's now hit those danger zones well and truly, and it will not avoid a crisis. In fact, even if they were three times as smart as the Western 
managers, and I do regard the Chinese as more intelligent than most Western managers I've met, um, they've got themselves into crisis three or even five times or seven times as fast if you look at various indicators. So they're in the danger zone. They've got debt much more than 1.5 times GDP. It's 1.8 if you trust the figures they give to the Bank of International Settlements. Of course the debt ratio is going to be higher than that. And it's rather than growing by Richard's figure was 18% of GDP, they rose by 70% of GDP over the last five years. So it's an enormous shock. They simply can't uh, sidestep it. They're going to have to cope with being on the downside of the capitalist road rather than the upside. So we got into this crisis partly also out of bad economic theory. And I've spent my whole, well, not just my academic career, which goes back to 1987, but I was a student activist at Sydney University in 1972, fighting against mainstream economics back then. So I feel a very strong um, empathic relationship with the students who are now fighting for a change in economics. I've been doing it for over 40 years. So we need a realistic approach to economics. It's not ideological. Uh, I think you can't help but having a a set of values about how you think society should function. But the ideology that's loaded in economics, patient and impatient, perfect this, imperfect that, etc., etc., and the Austrian views about it as well, and the Marxists at the other extreme, that just belongs in political science. We actually need a serious analysis of how capitalism functions if we're not going to let it destroy it. Now, most universities only teach the mainstream. There are a few universities, and thankfully London's got more of them than anywhere else, that teach non-mainstream. Uh, but the, the response of the mainstream has been to try to go back and re-emphasise what they think is the, the true faith. And that's come out of what's called a core curriculum, which you might find some of your uh, children are going off to universities using the core curriculum these days. It's just the same mainstream stuff repackaged. It's got... The, the, the theme for core is teaching economics as if the last 30 years has happened. What they mean is teaching economics as if the last 30 years of neoclassical economic research has happened. They're just updating them on neoclassical theory. There's no change to the actual substance. What we need is to support universities that actually take a pluralist approach, which the student rebels are calling for now, people like the Manchester post-crash society, uh, rethinking economics and so on. And there are some universities that are doing that. Of course, mine is one, Kingston. And so is Greenwich. So please, to help out what I'm doing, support those universities and those students. Thank you. So, Steve, what's the reaction of uh, anybody you speak to in the Bank of England about these ideas? Pretty positive. Uh, I mean, the Bank of England's a large organisation, and there are some people there who are quite mainstream and would reject what I'm saying. But what's different about the bank is they actually hire uh, people who have got a wide range of perspectives. And Andy Haldane, who's been the person putting together what they now call the One Bank Research Group, Andy is an enthusiast for big data analysis and basically saying, let the data tell us, let the data be the model. Okay. And uh, there's an openness there, which I find quite uh, refreshing compared to, say, the Central Bank of Australia, which uh, might, you might as well be talking to a brick wall. In fact, the brick wall might have more intelligent things to say. Um, or there's Federal Reserve, which still believes in equilibrium this and equilibrium that. So uh, and even, like, if you look at their chief economic advisor, a guy called Michael Kumoff, Michael's a very conventional, extremely good mainstream modeler. He completely gets debt banks and money. And he's supporting people like positive money, uh, arguing for uh, sovereign money and so on. So there's a, there's a degree of openness in the, in the Bank of England that I've not seen in any other 
OECD bank. I've seen it in some of the uh, non-OECD, but never, never as strongly as in the Bank of England. If I can check my understanding of your recommendations, as well yeah. as people learning a different kind of economics, which mm. you're advocating, and uh, having people being broadly educated, you're also advocating that we have some kind of debt jubilee, yeah. and that would involve everybody receiving money mm. given by governments yeah. around the world. Yeah, I mean, you'll see positive money putting forward a similar argument about sovereign money and saying we should use this to finance infrastructure and so on. Yes, that's true, but I think we should also use it to attack the level of private debt, because if we can effectively use one set of double-entry bookkeeping tables to cancel what's accumulated in another set of double-entry bookkeeping tables, which is all that really is going on here. We reduce the debt burden overnight. That will reduce asset prices dramatically, redistribute wealth at the same time, and provide spending power to compensate for the decline in debt. Because if you don't do it that way, falling private debt will reduce demand and will be stuck in the sort of stagnation that Japan's been in for the last quarter century. And People have said that if there is money given out to everybody, it just generates inflation. Be, yeah, they're trying to do that right now. I mean, I, mean, I find it, it, it's, it's like this huge bogey called Zimbabwe, and uh, Weimar Republic pops up every time you talk about it. But at the same time, if you ask them what's their main policy objective right now, they'll say, oh, we want to cause inflation. Okay. So why are you objecting then? You know, it's just one of these mental mindsets that inflation is always and everywhere a bad idea, but at the same time, they're trying to cause 2% and they're currently achieving zero. So you would have, to, obviously, you would, you would attenuate it. And it's easy to do open market operations and pour money out of the system as well. The government's doing, doing that for decades. But they're trying to do, they're trying to cause inflation in an indirect way. What they have caused is asset price inflation, which has made the problem worse. They haven't caused consumer price inflation because they're using the wrong model of how that happens. Let's take uh, some questions from the floor. So, the question over there. If we, uh, wait until the mic gets to you, please, so everybody can hear it. Pass the mic along. And let's give another mic to the guy there in the beard, yes. Good move. So, let's have this one first, then we'll have that one. Thank you. Hi, thank you for such a great talk. Um, I think that, uh, would you agree with the fact that capitalism is deliberately deliberately creating recessions, uh, world global recessions, to um, destabilise countries. Therefore, any analysis you do and any conclusions that you do will never be listened to or incorporated into countries because it would therefore um, contradict what capitalism is, which is trying to do, which is what I just said, trying to destabilise countries. Yeah, um, I, think this, I, th I think what they achieve in the way of destabilisation, uh, well, you'll, you'll, you'll get arguments like uh, what the economic hitman, arguing that's the, that's the deliberate role of organisations like the IMF. Um, having dealt with enough IMF economists, I think it's a, it's a side effect of what they think is going to be good for you, like religious zealots who believe that it's really great to flagellate yourself, good for your health, or doctors who used to put leeches on you if you're, to improve you by taking pressure out of your system by reducing your blood supply. It's, it's that level of ignorance that leads to those sorts of behaviours. Capitalists in general are happiest when the economy is booming. Politically, what they want is a booming economy while the workers are suppressed, which is a hard combination to pull off. So I don't think it's actually deliberate. I think it's an unintended uh, but welcome side effect in some instances. But uh, the real thing which goes against, which makes my stuff politically non-feasible, is I'm challenging the financial sector. I'm, what I argue is the main class conflict in capitalism is not between worker and capitalists, it's between worker and the financial system. 
in that model and I think in the real world as well, largely the capitalists, genuine capitalists, people who invest, hire workers and produce output, they tend to be bystanders in a struggle that actually occurs between workers and the financial sector, where the workers don't even know it's the financial sector that's screwing them. Okay, question over here. Hi. Um, are there any external factors that will have to force you to change the structure of your model because of technology changes? Um, in particular, for example, you just mentioned workers. In the future, it's probably more likely to be automation that will impact them than the financial sector. And equally, we may find that debt comes from autonomous organizations rather than private individuals. So are you going to have to change anything uh, because of what, we, what we're seeing happening with technology? Well, I think over the long run, we've got to change the distribution of income in our society because in the next 30 or 40 years, it'll be possible to produce all the output we would ever need with a trivial number of workers. So we can't base income distribution entirely on wage and profits anymore. Uh, if we do, we're going to end up in a dystopian future like some of the popular American movies right now, you know, Hunger Games and stuff like that. So yes, there is a technological reason why we have to evolve as a society, and I'm not at all confident we'll do it uh, in anything like a smooth or successful fashion. Um, so I'm th what I'm telling you is not the, the full deal. It's just talking about a capitalist economy where you need labour and, and, and capital to produce output. If you go to the type of future world we're facing with technological change where you know, 3D printing and robotics and so on can produce 99% of output and you need 1% or 2% of workers to manage the machines, uh, then that can be a dystopian future or a utopia. And I've got a feeling we'll, we'll head towards dystopia before we ever see utopia. Question there, yes? Um, yeah, thank you very much. That was a, a, an amazing talk. Uh, just a question around um, what do you think about the possibility of moral hazard um, when individuals are given a debt jubilee or debt That's precisely why I talk in favour of giving money uni uniformly, independent of whether somebody's a debtor or a saver. See, the funny thing is I find people talking about moral hazard who behaved in the most immoral, not saying you did, but the most immoral fashion prior to the crisis. It's, it's the banking sector that screams moral hazard straight away and they say, well, what about you guys and what you did in the uh, subprime crisis and so on, or HSBC, et cetera, et cetera. So, but fundamentally, yes, there is an issue. You wouldn't want to reward debtors and, and, and penalise people who didn't get involved in the debt bubble. But if you gave money equally, independent of whether you were in debt or not, then that moral hazard issue disappears. What you then have to do is stop the financial sector doing the same thing again the next time. So I'd want a set of controls on the sort of lending that banks could do to stop asset bubbles occurring once more. So it's not a single issue. But if the real moral hazard behaviour you have to control, it's what the finance sector will do, not what individual people will do. And is this proposal of yours the same as what people call basic income guarantee? No, it's different. I mean, that's, that is one thing you could do. I mean, that's, um, I mean, Bill Mitchell was talking about that last week. Um, and that's a sensible idea as a way of underwriting unemployment and so on. But what I'm talking about is things like controls on bank lending over mortgages. So, for example, banks claim to lend on the basis of your income, okay? Uh, and that amount they'll lend compared to your income always rises over time until the crisis hits. And that's what causes house prices to rise. So what I propose in, in mortgages is what I call the pill, which stands for Property Income Limited Leverage. I've got to find a good acronym. And the idea there is to limit the amount of money you can, that a bank can lend to buy an asset, buy a property, to some multiple of the rental income 
actual or imputed rental in income of that property. So, for example, if you were renting a place that you paid £20,000 a year for, my, the pool would say, roughly speaking, that you could, no matter how much income you earned, the maximum you could borrow to buy that property would be £200,000. Now, if you did that, you'd get a damn sight lower house prices out of it, and the person who would buy the house would be the person who saved more money, not the people who got a person who got a high level of leverage. So controls like that to stop banks refinancing asset bubbles, that's the main thing I think we need in the future. Okay. There's a question there with the mic. Um, sorry. Uh, thank you very much. I, I don't know about anybody else, but I found that quite complicated. Um, and I was um, just wondering how you kind of think, you could, uh, how you are going to go about, um, you know, making sure that people, normal people like me, um, understand all of that stuff, you know, and can buy into these types of ideas. Um, obviously, the Jubilee sounds great, but you mentioned that people might be kind of, oh, you know, I've been saving all my life. Why do I have to, why would anybody else get money? Yeah. And you've mentioned how you might do it by giving it to everybody, but how do you kind of really communicate those ideas and get people to buy into them? Well, if you, if you had a, like we'd only get the money if you had bank accounts, okay? Virtually everybody's got a bank account. And pay to the banks, you have an algorithm that says if this person has no debt, then it goes into their deposit account, otherwise you reduce their outstanding debt by the amount that's being injected. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't need to have people making an individual decision. People who had no debt at all would have nothing to cancel. People that had mortgage debt would only have that debt paid down. And you'd need a similar mechanism for firms as well, but something of that nature, so that you use the capacity of the state to create money to effectively swap credit-created money for fiat-created money. Because we basically live in a two-part system these days, and we're not conscious of it. 90, as, as, the, as positive money says all the time, roughly 97% of the money in the economy these days is created by banks. So it's credit-based money. But what we've shown is how unstable that system is. You have a more stable system when more of the money is created by the state, which requires running deficits. Otherwise, you don't create that money and financing them through the central bank rather than through selling bonds to the public. So if you, if you do what I'm talking about, it'd be automatic. You wouldn't have anybody making an arbitrary choice not to pay their debts down because it'd go through the banking system. And the consequent effect would be to go back to the sort of mixed fiat and credit money system we should have, something more like 40, 60, rather than 3% and 97%. A question over there? Yeah, um, do you think it, if he's elected, Jeremy Corbyn's idea of um, an infrastructure investment bank could be modelled on yeah. uh, and even as successful as the um, Commonwealth Bank in Australia? <laughs> the Commonwealth Bank is rather a different model to what it used to be. But... Uh, yeah, an infrastructure bank of, yeah, an infrastructure bank. I mean, a large part of why we have crumbling infrastructure is because since Maggie Thatcher in England and since Reagan in America, the belief has been the government should run a balanced budget. Now, the reality is if you have an expanding economy, it needs an expanding amount of money to do so. If the government's not running a deficit, then it's not contributing to that growth in the money supply. So the only way it can happen is through the banks which is why the high level of... One, one contributor to why we've got such a high level of indebtedness these days. But it also means the government's spending about 3% of GDP less than it should be spending. Now, if you spent that additional 3% of GDP, you'd have well-funded universities, which you don't have right now. You've got well-building universities, not well-funded universities. You'd have road being fixed. You wouldn't have to have privatised rail, et cetera, et cetera. The stuff that Corbyn's speaking about to some extent right now, 
would be feasible for all politicians if they accepted the target level should be of the order of 3% of GDP and not zero. So you could fund that infrastructure bank quite easily on a regular basis, not just through the debt jubilee I'm talking about, but also through the government running a deficit in normal times, which is what they should do. Down here. Um, well, that brings us on to the question I was going to ask about. You haven't said very much about the role of the state, except mm. as a money creator, mm. the old-fashioned role. But the state has another role in, in which, that it creates the future in a way. A lot mm. of the inventions on which a lot of profitable businesses have been based, certainly in the last 80 years or so, have come from state-funded research and development. Mm. Um, I think there's a good case for expanding the role of the state. I think that when it comes to long-term requirements such as long-term energy, low-carbon energy, I believe that the, the amount of investment by the state should be increased by a factor of 10 on that hmm. because it's running at absolutely ridiculously low levels. So this, although people think, oh, it's huge technical progress, in fact, I don't think there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline because governments are now impoverished and as you say they're cutting funding for all of this stuff like getting rid of uh, state research establishments mm. and support for long-term blue sky projects which the private sector doesn't do and the private sector has sometimes been quite good at picking up the ball and running with it such as you know silicon valley but uh, it's not particularly good at that, but I still say that most of the real advances come from public effort. Yeah, I mean, we've got a totally inverted attitude towards waste in the sense of efficiency, which is the obsession that we've dominated government by for some time. But a lot of investment comes out of people who've got the capability to lose money. And there are two, two sets of institutions in society that can afford to lose large amounts of money, one of which are venture capitalists, and the other is the, the government. The government can afford to waste money on trying to send people to the moon. Okay? But that is where innovation comes from, a large part of it. Mariano Mazzucuto is at University Absolutely, of Sussex, yeah. makes a very strong case in that basis. And we, there are, she argues, and it's quite, when you look at the data, it's quite emphatically so, the state does the blue sky investment that you would never get the private sector to do. The private sector can later run with that, as you've seen, say, with Elon Musk and, and SpaceX which is a very, very efficient way of getting rockets into space, as so long as they can stop them blowing up occasionally. Uh, but at the same time, it would never have happened were it not for the NASA projects. Yeah. Now, well, what you have is the 40 or so years where the state is making huge losses in terms of money being spent sending people to the moon when you can't sell what they bring back from the moon for anything like the cost of getting there. But that is actually what generates the innovation that keeps our society progressing. So you need both. And the whole neoliberal agenda has shut it down and just said it should only be the private sector that does it, but the private sector will only do it if it can see a potential return. And there are blue sky things like space travel they would never have got into in the first place were it not for what was done by the government beforehand. And the same thing, the internet. People think the internet's a private invention. Well, that's a nice idea. You can go back and find the original emails inside DARPA, the very first email. And the De Defence Advanced Research Projects Authority, I think the DARPA stands for. Um, so, Various things we take for granted were inventions of the state. 
okay, as well as many in the private sector, but there are two classes to innovation, and we've really massively underfunded one with this mad obsession about efficiency. We have to press on. There's quite a lot of people who've had their hands up for a long time, and we're already a bit out of time. I'm going to let this run another five or so minutes. Yeah. There's a question down here. Yes? Thanks. Um, I wonder if you can just comment on um, what the role of what we might call cryptocurrencies are, not mm. only on your uh, models, but also on the kind of... Um, inevitable uh, booms and busts of uh, of capitalism i mean yeah online currencies are more yeah. fragmented forms of private money and the main thing giving legitimacy to cryptocurrencies is the european union because the insane argument about bailing and depositors in cyprus and all these nonsense ideas that are being put forward about depositors taking part of the risk in banks is delegitimizing the main reason we use banks. We want these for a safe place to leave our money for transactions. So cryptocurrencies have got a huge boost in status courtesy of the complete mismanagement of credit money by state authorities in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, I'm not, Bitcoin has got technical issues in it. Uh, having a, a way of producing money which is about as expensive as mining for gold is not a sensible comparator to, you know, free creation of, 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 by double entry bookkeeping. But there are other cryptocurrencies out there which don't use the same encoding approach. I know some which are like pyramidal structures of money in particular social groups that then have central banks that can transfer between other money groups. There's, there's a legitimacy for them. And they certainly matter more during a crisis like we're having right now because it gives you an alternative means of spending. So I don't see them as ever necessarily replacing a combination of credit and fiat money. And I think Bitcoin's got all sorts of issues. I didn't realise that a Bitcoin transaction takes six minutes or ten minutes on a supercomputer. Okay? That's not the way you want to produce something which is used for transactions. Um, so there are issues like that. But they have legitimacy now, given how the states and the bureaucrats have mismanaged the private credit system. And I think they'll always have a sort of role. And they're certainly there. They're a sensible thing when you've got a credit-based system which can break down. So there is an opportunity, as in one of the earlier questions, that technological innovation, whether it's in 3D printing or, in this case, in a mm. bit blockchain, mm. might uh, generate uh, alternative scenarios that will run alongside the scenarios you're painting. They, they can. You've just you just got to have, have another mod, another row in your spreadsheet for how much money is in these decentralised uh, yeah. financial systems. Yeah, it doesn't have to be the banks that create it. That's true, and you've got other, I mean, I've seen some private groups forming which actually create their own internal currency, and then there's a question of exchanges between them. But we don't want to have to think that hard about money. I mean, in that sense, ultimately, we, we didn't think about our bank accounts until they, the banks themselves started going bust. And that's really how it should be. It should be something you don't need to think about. But what we've created is something that drags you out of a, you know, a, a, a rainy London night to come and listen to an economist. It's a sign of a malfunctioning economy, not a successful one. <laughs> It's a sign of intelligence and innovation as well. The person with the mic down there now. Thank you. Uh, thanks for a really thought-provoking talk. Uh, as you were speaking about the reticence of the Ben Bernankes and other politicians in the world to uh, depart from neoclassical theory, I can think of rationalisations for that. But when you were talking about the reticence of universities to depart from neoclassical theory, that mm really had me stumped, and I was hoping that you could elaborate on why you think that's the case. I just missed a bit, bit of the final part of the question, just for my hearing being a bit of a challenge, so... So, so yeah. wh wh uh, why, why aren't uh, universities uh, 
why are some, some universities uh, resisting this line of thinking oh, so much? Oh, because it's me coming along and saying that they've got their economics wrong. It's a bit like a Muslim walking up to the, to the Vatican and saying, I found the bones of Jesus Christ. What are you going to do? Uh, it really is. It's, they're religious institutions. Religious uh, institutions. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the antichrist to most neoclassical economists. <laughs> so, but you're on record as saying that most of them you think are sincere. Oh, that's the trouble. See, if they were insincere, you could easily pay them off. Right. Uh, but because they, <laughs> because they sincerely believe this stuff, that's why they're dangerous. So you'll find if you buy a copy of Debunking Economics, you'll find a, in the preface of this edition, I wrote about an incident. Well, I didn't went to a Catholic school. And we had a fantastic teacher in my final years at the school who, rather than having religion classes being catechism-thumping exercises, he let us run debates. And not only did we have debates, he sat at the back of the room and didn't pipe up and let one of us chair the discussions, which is a fantastic experience. And there's one time we were talking away about some politician, and we're all moaning and groaning about this particular person. It's back in the 60s. And uh, somebody said, well, at least he's sincere. And everybody nodded their heads and agreed and said, yeah, yeah, fair enough, he's sincere. Well, the teacher piped up and he said, don't overrate sincerity. The most sincere person you'll meet in your life is the maniac chasing you down the road with an axe trying to chop your head off. <laughs> and that's the trouble. You can't stop them wanting to do it because it's for your own good. So it's sincerity is the problem. They actually sincerely believe this stuff. And to get them to abandon it means abandoning a whole set of beliefs about how the economy operates, which are as strong as the belief somebody has about who is God. Uh, microphone's over there, yes? Yes, you've got it. Oh. Yeah, uh, what would you say is the uh, most possible way of getting to a point where governments are seriously considering debt jubilees? Yeah, I think it will take public action. I think there's more public action going on about the need to reduce debt in England than virtually anywhere else. And people like Anne Pettifor, who's very prominent in debates and become a good friend, um, the Positive Money Group in, the, in a generic way are also talking about it. So you've got more discussion about the possibility of it. And uh, even, like, there are some very mainstream economists like John Moabal at Oxford, for example, who's talking in favour of, of debt reduction using the same mechanisms I'm talking about. So uh, I'm not tiring all, everybody in the mainstream with that brush, by the way. There are some people more open-minded than others. Uh, but it is possible, but it will take political action. And my, I know the main resistance is people are going to say, oh, you can't do it, when they're doing almost exactly the same thing with QE, but giving money to the banks rather than to the public. Okay, on a grand scale, too. And B, it'll cause inflation, which, of course, they're trying to cause, and you have to go through this cognitive dissonance about why don't you want to cause what you want to cause. Um, but you could do it, I think, by saying, let's just give it a trial. Let's try it on a small scale and see what happens. Now, for example, in Australia, uh, and I think I can take some credit for this happening, uh, given the sequence of interviews that occurred in the media at the time it happened, one of the things the Australian government did to try to counteract the impact of the global financial crisis was to give everybody $960. No, no, it was $960 rather than $1,000, but everybody who'd paid their taxes that year by that time, which didn't include me, unfortunately, I was late, uh, got $960 as a cheque through the mail. And that was then boosting spending. Now, I want to not just boost spending, I want to cut debt. But it's already been done. And the, there are only two countries that didn't go into recession in the OECD during the global financial crisis. One was South Korea and the other was Australia. Now, South Korea, I think because it was so close to China, 
Us too, in terms of the China effect coming in Australia's advantage after the event. But that stimulus package was a major reason why we didn't go down. So you can test it and see how it works on a small scale. Something the order of a thousand quid wouldn't be a bad starting point. Question over there, yeah. Yeah, thanks. You've convinced me about the value of the debt jubilees. Um, unfortunately, I'm not the people who are actually operating with Bernie Madoff's real legacy, high-frequency trading. Mm. When you've actually given everybody their money under the debt jubilee, how do you stop the same process continuing with the same people operating it unless you've got not just some kind of regulation but some kind of technical control to prevent it happening? Because it seems to me that the scale of operation of financial movements, and I know it's not real money, but it is real. Oh, it's real money. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, how are you going to actually stop that recurring and making it worse and worse on a scale that any level of debt jubilee simply can't countermand? That's one of the advantages of the Second World War and the Great Depression because those traumatic events were so extreme that the bankers were completely expurgated to the attitudes they had in the 1920s when they financed the Roaring Twenties and became completely subservient to the, to the industrial sector and to the government at the time. Um, we haven't had anything like that this time round, so they've still got those attitudes, and if you gave them money to be back into the same old behaviours once more. So you have to control what the financial sector does. The financial sector will always want to lend more money than you want. Okay, it'll always be trying to pump debt out there. It's just a, the nature of how it makes money is by it makes a profit is by creating debt. So you, that's why I've suggested the pill as a way to control what they can do in mortgage lending and in asset markets. I would actually like to ban margin lending. Okay. I can just show, as I've shown you, that correlation. What causes the volatility and the ups and downs in the market is the level of margin debt. I, it's the same reason that you don't have credit cards inside casinos. You shouldn't have margin debt inside share markets. And equally, you can control things like high-frequency trading by putting what's called, I think it's called a high-frequency bandpass filter into the order mechanism so that mm. any order you put into the system takes uh, 30 seconds to a minute to go through. And something like that would eliminate those possibilities. So there are technical ways of controlling those elements of the financial sector. But again, I want to remove the capacity of banks to make money by financing asset bubbles. Because what, what, what I would like to do is make it possible for, for, for banks to make money by financing investment. And the great danger there for the moment, and a sensible reason why banks don't fund entrepreneurs, if, if say one in five entrepreneurs succeeds and you lend money to entrepreneurs, then four or five of them are gonna go bankrupt and not pay your money back, and all you get is interest out of the one who survives. It'd be far better if banks could behave like venture capitalists, or in this sense like uh, the Islamic finance system, where to lend to entrepreneurs, they got an equity stake in the business. And then if four out of five fold, they make money on the one who does succeed by the value of the equity rising. So we need to change not just in the sense of constricting banks, but also making it possible for them to profit out of the sort of lending we'd like to see them do. This will have to be the last question from the audience. I wanted to ask, please, as you run your model successfully and everything works all right, how will we guarantee that we don't run out of raw materials as your uh, machine is working? <laughs> we are going to run out of raw materials unless we get off the planet in production. So 
the limits to growth are real and we've ignored them and that's why we're having ecological crises as well. So I, I'm working with people to try to model the impact of the economy on the ecological system, which we still haven't done properly uh, in a dynamic sense. And we have to be aware that we simply can't maintain the rate of physical growth we've got on the planet and the population we've got on the planet. And I think we've completely failed to do that. We will have an ecological crisis uh, on a severe scale in the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, we seem to only learn after going through crises rather than preventing them. Do so you expect the, the ecological crisis before or after the financial crisis? Which one? Uh, we're, going to, we, we, we're going to be permanent financial crisis and the ecological crisis will come in from the side. That might be our third. On that happy note, this is not the end of the discussion because there's clearly an awful lot of, I mean, every, every answer you gave is opening new, new lines of the discussion. The good thing is that you've written down a lot of this. It's not just in your book, but we should also mention that there's a great deal on your website, mm -hmm. debunkingeconomics.com. No, not that one. That's actually, uh, I got screwed by uh, having a lousy commercial partner. It taught me never to get into bed with anybody in finance yeah. that you wouldn't get into bed with otherwise. Um, so um, that's, the debunking economics is pretty much a dead site. It will refer my emails, your emails to me that will come through there, but the main one is debtdeflation.com. Debtdeflation.com. Yeah, with slash blogs as well. I put my column on Forbes too, but I'll put more stuff on debt deflation. So, and people can see videos of your talks and, uh, and uh, PowerPoints. But my, my, the question I was waiting for is, there seems to be nobody from the neoliberal background standing up and saying you're wrong because of X, Y, and Z. <laughs> Is that because the neoliberals in the audience are too shy or because they've already decided it's not worth coming here? What do you think? More likely the latter, I think. Yeah, well, and that brings me to the other point. Well, what is the right way to, to convince people to change their minds? Because you've been going at this for more than 20 years. I think it takes a second financial crisis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, so, but, I mean, if you look at well, why did Keynes succeed, Keynes wrote, the general theory came out in 1936. Now, if you look at the Great Depression, we tend to think of it just one big event. But in fact, it was a, the slump began at the end of 29. Unemployment, as the National Bureau of Economic Research reported, it went from zero in October of 1929 to 25% by 1932, which was a huge shock. It then fell to 11% by about 1936. And then Roosevelt was then persuaded to try to balance the budget. And what had happened was massive private sector deleveraging had occurred. It slowly got back to the stage where the private sector was, so was where the private sector was borrowing again, and the economy recovered to 11% unemployment rate. When Roosevelt tried to go back to balancing the budget, the private sector began to delever again, and unemployment rose from 11% to 20% again. Now that's roughly when Keynes' book came out, and I think the first time through the neoclassical thought, oh, big exogenous shock, you know, it's gone away. Thank God that's gone back to our usual way of thinking. And that's where Hicks's version of Keynes came out too. Uh, but Keynes, when Keynes came out, I think they were in a state of despair. One crisis was bad enough. Two so soon, one so soon after the other, put them in despair. We need another alternative. Here's the new Messiah. They moved across to Keynes. They bastardised Keynes as well, but that was the sense of despair. I think we needed another one before the neoclassicals will say. I just give up. I mean, I was on a stage with, is it Henry Magnus or George Mag Magnus, some name like that? He's a fairly prominent economist here. I was on stage with George uh, at the Financial Times conference about six weeks ago. And at that, somebody asked him, when's the next crisis going to be? And he said, oh, a shock like that doesn't come along for at least, in, at least two decades. And I said, I'll take a bet with you on that one, George, because the cause, which is the private debt level, hasn't 
gone away. It's still there. We have excessive private debt levels. Any boom will come back with another downturn again in the future. He thinks it's not going to happen. Now, if any true believer in this stuff, exogenous shock, you don't get two exogenous shocks on that scale so close together. When another crisis comes along, that excuse disappears. Then a bit of despair might set in and you might finally get them open-minded and willing to say, hell, we don't know what's going on. Can somebody else tell us, please? So that might be one future. Another future is that the discussions we're having now will actually grow and will influence more people with, even though uh, people's minds are often fixed, there may be cleverer ways to get them to change their minds. And I think there's a great deal of value in what you've been sharing tonight. So I want to ask everybody to give a very warm round of applause to... Thank you.